0: Again, for you pastors who would like, I I did get one, I got one email now, so I'm obligated to send him 11 addresses, and if you will get me your, if you're a pastor, and if you'll get me your email address, I will send these messages, these addresses to you, because I'm vitally, vitally concerned that our people be instructed about who God is. Most Christian people will not hear a series like your session is arranging for you to have this weekend. Most Christian people will never hear a series of messages on the attributes of God in their entire lifetime. Pastors are simply not preaching Those issues anymore. I'm sorry about that. Well, good morning once again, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been praying through these addresses that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom so that you may. Know the triune God of your salvation more fully and more profoundly. If your God is small, you see, then your faith will not expect much of him. If your God is great, then your faith will exhibit that fact, and both your life and the lives of others around you will reflect his majesty and greatness. That is to say, every Christian here is either a big godder or a little godder. And of course, it is my hope and desire that you will be the latter, that you will be big godders. Now, it doesn't take much daring on my part to say that never has the need been greater for spirit-animated preachers to stand in pulpits across the world and with power and in proportion proclaim and rightly handle for their congregations the attributes of God. A dearth of biblical preaching exists today on this topic, so we should not be surprised at the great theological illiteracy that abounds in this country and around the world regarding what the one living and true God is really like. Most people, if they profess to believe in God at all, regard him as a grandfatherly, a rather indulgent man upstairs who, while he himself has no relish for folly, leniently weaks at their youthful indiscretions and who always has their best interests at heart. He doesn't ask much of them, and they don't ask much of him, other than just speedily to be there with help if and when they need him for something at all other times he is free to do as he pleases as long as he lets them do as they please that's the pretty much the attitude of christian people even so don't under so don't be surprised if the non-christian feels that way I believe this series of addresses has already shown you how seriously flawed is such a perception of God. And to put it plainly, there is one and only one remedy for such broad-based theological illiteracy, and that is for our seminaries to train a generation of men who, to paraphrase our larger catechism, question 159, We'll preach sound biblical doctrine about the one living and true God in the following ways. This is right out of our catechism. We are to preach sound biblical doctrine about God first diligently. That means in season and out of season. That is to say, when they feel like doing it and when they don't feel like doing it. When their congregations want to hear sound doctrine and when their congregations don't want to hear sound doctrine, you still preach diligently. Secondly, our catechism tells our pastors to preach plainly, not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Third, preach faithfully making known the whole counsel of the triune God, who, as we have been affirming, is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Fourth, to preach wisely, applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of their hearers, being always as wise as serpents, and as harmless as doves toward them. Fifth, preach zealously with fervent love for God and for the salvation of the souls of their people from sin and hell and for Christ's service and heaven. And finally, to preach sincerely, aiming at God's glory and their people's conversion, edification, and final salvation. We need to raise up a generation of preachers who will do that. Preaching once again, and you will see revival sweep this land as never before. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord and equally mighty Savior, drawn once again to this hour by your blessed Holy Spirit who is eternally and co-equally God with you, the Father and the Son. And by your triune mercies, enable us through our attendance today upon your word to learn to know you more perfectly, to adore you more fully, and to serve you more single-mindedly. This I ask for our soul's health, And for the glory and cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. According to Holy Scripture, the one living and true God is all-powerful. Or, to use the common Latinized term for it, He is omnipotent. Infinitely and eternally and unchangeably so. This means that his power can be neither increased since it is already infinite, nor diminished since it is eternally unchangeable. This also means that God is able to do whatever he wills in the way in which he wills it, that he is not subject to another's dominion, but is rather the sovereign king and lord of the entire universe. That he created is a legitimate inference. His sovereignty I say is a legitimate inference. From his attribute of omnipotence. Scripture passages could fill pages to this effect. But the following passages will suffice to make my point. The Lord himself asks. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question from the context, and it expects a negative response. After the exodus, Moses sang of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt by his awesome power and might. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, scattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, but you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in power, working wonders. The Lord thundered from heaven, the voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies, great bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils." O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? You are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Egypt with your strong arm. You scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also is the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Your arm is endued with power. Your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Where were you, God asked Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Did not I, the Lord? This is a marvelous passage, Isaiah 40. Every pastor should memorize this particular chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Uh, this self-esteem kind of preaching has would have a problem with that kind of... Uh, Teaching that God looks upon the world and he regards the people of it as worthless and less than nothing. You know what less than nothing is? You know, (laughs) less than nothing? That's a zero with the rim rubbed out. I mean, it's nothing. That's less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? Who, he who brings out the starry host one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Jeremiah prayed, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too wonderful for you. Then the word of the Lord came to the Jeremiah, I am indeed the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too wonderful for me? This last question being again rhetorical, expecting a negative response. God's dominion is an eternal dominion. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? John the Baptist declared, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. He doesn't normally do it that way. He's able to do it if that's what he wanted to do. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. To Mary's question, how will this conception come about since I am a virgin? Gabriel replied, nothing is impossible with God. Paul speaks of God's incomparably great power according to the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And John summarizes the entire teaching of Scripture on this topic simply by declaring that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. These verses and passages teach what the totality of Scripture consistently and repeatedly declares that God's works of creation General and special providence, redemption, and the consummation of all things are all effects of his mighty power. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much. This is still Spurgeon. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttress throne and leans on no assisting arm. Last night when we went home, I'm getting out of the car. Son Bob ran around. He said, Dad, let me help you get out of the car. I needed his help. I needed his help. But no, no assisting arm does God ever have to lean upon. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. And before Spurgeon, Stephen Charnock declared that God's power is such that he can do whatsoever he pleases without difficulty... Without resistance, it cannot be checked, restrained, or frustrated by the creature. If it could be, how vain would be his eternal counsels, how empty would be his promises, how scarecrowish would be his threatenings. But power belongs to God, and we may be certain that though he uses his power judiciously, which is just to say that his power is ever a controlled and never a wild power operating without direction or purpose. He can and does use his power according to his good pleasure to accomplish whatever he pleases. When I taught in, in, in the seminary class at this point, I would often say to my students when I'm saying, you must understand that God's omnipotence is always a, a controlled power. It's never a wild power that just can't be in any way governed. I said I, I heard of the, of the man who trained his gorilla uh, to play golf. And he would take his gorilla around to the various golf courses. And he would challenge the golf pro there. And the pro would always accept. The uh, gorilla would tee up on the first tee and uh, address the ball. And he would swing and hit the ball 495 yards and land one foot from the hole. The pro would drop his clubs, and I can't do that. I'm giving up. By the way, how does he putt? just like he drives 495 yards at a time. See, that's uncontrolled power. God's power is always controlled. Let's develop our doctrine a little more for the sake of precision. Two points. My first, my first point is this. It is inherently impossible For the infinitely powerful God ever to employ all his power. To say that he can immediately places a limitation upon it. The fact of the matter is that to nothing anywhere in this universe, anywhere in this universe, to nothing, uh, can I direct your attention as the visible result or the display of the full exercise of his omnipotence, that is, all of his power. Granted, this universe, from mankind's perspective, is titanically immense and awesomely glorious. To give you some sense of this universe's immensity, let's reconfigure our universe for a moment. Imagine our sun, a medium-sized star in the Milky Way galaxy that is comprised, the Milky Way galaxy comprised of billions of such stars, star clusters, nebulae, and globular clusters. Imagine our sun for the moment the size of a ping-pong ball. Planet Earth would then be the size of a speck of dust, One one one-hundredth of an inch across, orbiting that ping-pong ball ten feet away. You got it? You got that picture in your mind? Okay. Pluto, our sun's most distant known planet, would be a smaller speck within the sun's gravitational pull, orbiting that ping-pong ball 120 yards away. Earth would be 10 feet away, Pluto 120 yards away. The next nearest star to us in our galaxy after the sun, Alpha Centauri, A Centauri, being an actual mile some four and a half light years distance or around 27 trillion miles away would be in our imagined universe. Now get it. Here's our sun. We're 10 feet away. Pluto is some... um, What did I say? Uh, Some uh, uh, 120 yards away. Then the next star in our galaxy... would be 500 miles away. Andromeda, our sister galaxy... with an an estimated 100 billion stars, one galaxy of nearly one trillion other observed galaxies of different sizes and shapes, being in actual miles, three million light years distant, or around 18 million trillion miles away, would be in our model universe. Now, this is just our next galaxy. The next galaxy would be 350 million miles away from our ping-pong sun. Do we need to say any more? Clearly, from our point of view, and even this is a gross understatement, Ours is an immense universe. But even so, this entire universe with all its grandeur is the display of only a portion of God's power and an infinitesimal portion at that. For the plenitude of his power is measureless. There is no reason to assume that he could not have made a trillion more galaxies or a trillion more varieties of flora and fauna here had he willed to do so. In fact, he was not exercised in the slightest or to any degree by his creative activity. He merely spoke, and this universe came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. How does Job describe in Job 26 what for us is this vast universe with all of its intricate details and interrelated workings, and even then it is still, it comes infinitely short of the reality. How does Job describe it? The cosmos with all that it contains, Job declares, reflects, but the outer fringe of his power, just a faint whisper of of his might but of God's infinite power well Job says who can understand the thunder of his power Habakkuk also strikingly states that when God shook the earth scattered the ancient mountains split the earth with rivers caused the sun and the moon to stand still even there Habakkuk says his power was hidden In other words, so inconceivably immense is the power of God, declares Habakkuk, that the power he creatively displays in the natural universe and providentially exhibits in the history of this universe actually conceals far more of his infinite power than it reveals. Stephen Charnock rightly stated in this regard, When I have spoken of divine power all that I can, and when you have thought all that you can think of it, your souls will prompt you to conceive something more beyond what I have spoken and you have thought. There is infinitely more power lodged in his nature that is not expressed in this world. Did you ever think about that? This whole universe, just a faint whisper of his infinite power, but his thunder. Who can feel or know that? In some, this universe, we think of it as, a, as displaying the glory of God. Yes, it does, but this universe constitutes. More a hiding of his power than it does a revelation of it. God has the power to do infinitely beyond what he has revealed to date by all his works. This entire universe for all of its spectacular grandeur in our eyes is only a pale reflection, a dim shadow, a faint whisper of the thunderous infinitude of his power. Indeed, a hiding of the immeasurable immensity of the power and might of his hand. God's power is simply incomprehensible to us, as we might well expect it to be, given the fact of his infinitude. And Professor Huxley's words are quite apropos here. We must sit down before these facts as little children. The scriptures intend then when they ascribe omnipotence to God that he has the power to do whatever it takes power to do. He has the power to do even that which he does not will to do and the only reason he does not exercise his power in such arenas is that he does not will to do it. But whatever he wills to do which is not determined by any limitation upon his power But only by his own nature and his wise, just, and holy purpose, he has the power to do. And while God does not will to do all that he has the power to do, he can do, and he does do, all his holy will. As John Frame declares, God's power always accomplishes his purpose. God does not intend to bring about everything he values. But he never fails to bring about what he intends. God has the power, for example, to rid the world of all its evil at this very moment. But for wise and holy reasons, eternally determined before the creation of the world, among these reasons being his design to gather to himself his elect throughout the ages, he does not will to do so yet It is this word, yet, which is the Christian's answer to the unbeliever's framing of the problem of evil. God says, God, he says, cannot be both all good and all powerful because of the presence of evil in the world. For if he were all good, he would rid the world of evil, but since he does not do so, he must not be omnipotent. If he were omnipotent... He could rid the world of evil, but since he does not do so, he must not be all good. The Christian simply replies that God is all good and hates evil and has the power to rid the world of it, but he will do so in his own good time and when he sees fit. My second point of development is this. When we speak of God's omnipotence, And say that God has the power to do anything he wants. We must make clear to our congregations when we say this that we do not mean that God can do anything. He can do neither the logically irrational nor that which is ontologically or ethically contrary to his nature. Let me explain what I mean here by two sub points. First, God cannot do the logically irrational, that is, the self contradictory, nor would he even try to do so, because he is rational, and contradictions are eternal disruptions of his rationality. He cannot make, he cannot think that two and two are five. He cannot make four-cornered triangles. He cannot make square circles. He cannot make a stone too heavy for him to lift. He cannot create adjacent mountains with no valley between them. These are what George Mavrodez calls pseudo-tasks or what Gerald Bray refers to as imaginary inventions totally unrelated to power that cannot exist in reality in all one has to do in order to verify to himself that what I have just said is true is to ask himself how much power would it take to make a wrong answer in arithmetical calculation the correct answer. How much power would it take? And if you'll ask that, you will realize that such pseudo-tasks belong to the domain of logic and are condemned by logic and not to the domain of power at all. Second, God cannot do that which is ontologically or ethically contrary to his nature. God cannot cease to exist Or cease to be God. He cannot divest himself of any of his attributes, which would be tantamount to his ceasing to be God. As we just argued, he cannot exercise all of his power, since it has no limits. Nor can he change, nor can he disown himself, nor can he lie, nor can he break a promise. Nor can he ignore your sin. Nor can he be tempted to sin. (coughs) Such, Such divine cannots, far from detracting from God's glory, are his glory. And for us to refrain from reckoning with such impossibilities for God would be to deny his glory and his perfection. This, then, is what we mean when we say that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. And I think you will agree with me when I say that our Reformed doctrine of God's omnipotence is truly mind-expanding and awe-inspiring. Let's apply now this doctrine to our lives. I have only two major points of application The first has to do with God's sovereignty. We cannot speak of God's omnipotence without speaking of the exercise of that almighty power over his creation in all things in it, including mankind. This absolute exercise of power we speak of as his sovereignty. And his almighty power is the guarantor of his sovereignty. His sovereignty is his absolute rule over the creation, backed by his omnipotent arm. His is the transcendent, invincible supremacy in decrees, in predestination, in actual government of nature, human life, and the world societies, and in final consummation. And because God's wisdom and power are infinite and unchangeable, we have every right to declare that God, who moves ceaselessly and effortlessly to accomplish his purposes, is absolutely sovereign over his universe. Never is his decretive will thwarted by anyone or anything. Never is his wise design frustrated. Never is his eternal purpose checkmated. Never does any man veto God's eternal plan. All things and all creatures serve and shall ever continue to serve his holy will. Even angelic and human sin and evil have their instrumental roles to play in his sovereign plan so that when he creates the whirlwind, we may be assured it is because he proposes to ride upon the storm. The Apostle Paul declares that God works all things in conformity with the counsel of his will, causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, and is bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under the headship of Christ. Our catechism captures this in question seven, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. In question 11, it defines God's works to providence as his most wise, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And both testaments are filled with illustrations and didactic statements concerning God's sovereign, providential governance of all his creatures and all their actions. And I give you two and a half, no, three and a half pages of scripture texts which teach that. If you want the references, you can see me and I'll be happy to give them. These are just a few of the scriptural affirmations that moved John Calvin to write God's will is and rightly ought to be the cause of all things that are. They also make clear how gravely in error is the Arminian system when it rejects the Calvinist view of predestination that teaches that God's sovereign decree determines all human actions and destinies and substitutes for it, on God's part, a laissez-faire posture toward man's choices and actions, and on man's part, the complete libertarian freedom to choose any one of two or more incompatible courses of action with equal ease. And they also underscore the simple fact that the triune God is not only mankind's, but also the Christian's sovereign king. We therefore as his redeemed subjects should submit to him, make his word the lamp for our feet and the light for our pathway, and obey every normative precept of his law. My second point of application is this, the New Testament relates God's power specifically to his works of redemption and consummation. In connection with redemption, we are informed that it was the power of the Spirit that created the human nature of our Lord. It was God's power who raised Christ from the dead and enthroned him in the heavenly realms as the king and head of his church. It is God's power that is exhibited in the good news of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe first For the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul declares that the proclamation of the crucified Christ is not only the wisdom of God, it is the power of God. Which affirmation leads me to remind you preachers present, as I did uh, in my original addresses to seminarians, that preaching, devoid of the cross not only will be morally platitudinous and vacuous at best, lacking the wisdom of God, but also will be spiritually infirm and invalid, lacking the power of God to transform lives. Such preaching, preaching without the cross, will never change lives except for the worse, for it will foster either self-righteousness In those who think they are good or despair. In those who know themselves to be incapable of reversing their irremediable corruption by themselves. It is God's power that quickens and raises the sinner from spiritual death and exalts him to heaven. It is God's power that enables the Christian to walk daily in the way that he should. It is God's power that shields and preserves the saints. It will be God's power that will someday raise you from physical death and transform you into a likeness of Christ's glorious body. In connection with the consummation, God, by his power, just as he destroyed the antediluvian world by the flood, will someday destroy this present world by fire. The heavens will disappear with a roar, The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. At that time, God will remove the wicked from the earth and will cast them, death, Hades, and Satan, into the lake of fire. He will will restore the cosmos in the sense that only righteousness will dwell in it. And with our new glorified bodies, there will be no more death or mourning, or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. But as Donald McLeod quite properly reminds us, and his reminder is sorely needed in this day, when the Left Behind series is sweeping across the evangelical church and by its eschatological teaching is raising false hopes that Jesus is coming even today, and that Christians, before he comes, will be raptured out of the world and not have to face tribulation. Well, Donald McLeod reminds us our confidence that this is the pattern of our future rests solely on the promise of God. There are no evidences in the world around us that such a consummation is either imminent or inevitable nor do we know of any force within the universe capable of effecting it. What we do know is that the God who made this world and who at present sustains it has declared his intention to transform it, and although our minds may stagger at the magnitude of the undertaking, yet in the face of his almightiness such hesitation is absurd. For hereto what he has promised, he is able also to. To perform. What should all this mean for you and me? First, if all this is so, and God's sovereign power is so great, and I trust that you believe that it is, then to any of his enemies, and perhaps one is sitting here before me, I would first say, Do you really think you can resist God? Yield to him, cease your hopeless war against him, capitulate, surrender at once, count the cost before you to continue to brave it out against him. You are as wax before the flame. Why, he could go through a host of people such as you are, as fire burns up stubble. Kiss the sun and do it now, lest he be angry. And you perish from the way when his wrath against you is kindled but a little. Second, if all of this is so and God's sovereign power is so great, and I trust that you believe it is, then to his enemy who would desire to make peace with him, I would say, then trust him to save you. Do not doubt for a second that he is able to lift you from the depths of your sin and away from the flames of perdition and to transform your depraved heart. All of the powers of His grace, God has treasured up in His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you place your trust in Him, He will forgive you of all your sins and iniquities and carry them away to the land of forgetfulness where not even He will ever remember them against you again forever as far as the east is from the west so far will he remove your transgressions from you so trust in the Lord forever for in the Lord is everlasting strength third if all this is so and God's sovereign power is so great and I trust that you believe that it is then to you his sons and daughters I would say first Since God is so strong, never dare to distrust him. Is his harm so short that he cannot deliver you from all your troubles, all your sorrows, all your grief, and all your needs? He who keeps the planets hurtling along in their orbits, he who maintains Orion and the Pleiades, does he not have the power to provide you with your daily food? and clothing. Surely he does. So bring your burdens and needs to him. Pour them out like water before him, and they shall pass away. And you will yet sing, the Lord is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Fourth, if all this is so, and God's sovereign power is so great, and I trust that you believe that it is, Then also to you, his sons and daughters, I would say, since God is so strong, then shake off all your fears of men. They are but grass and will wither within the hour. Why should you tremble at the tyrant's frown or cower before the enemies of Christ? Don't let the faces of proud men confound you trust in the Lord and fear not because if God is for us who can be against us and because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world fifth of all this is so and God's sovereign power is so great and I trust that you believe that it is I would say once again yet again to you his sons and daughters since God is so strong commit your future To him. Do not be afraid of tomorrow, for the sovereign Lord lives. The mighty God of Jacob is your refuge. He is the God of all your tomorrows as well as your God today. Whatever you are facing, in patience and quietness, wait for him. Rest in him and be at peace. Stand still and see the salvation of your God who will manifest the greatness of his power and reveal the might of his right arm in your behalf. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all human understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, for he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Sixth, if all this is so and God's sovereign power is so great, and I trust that you believe that it is, then I would say in particular today to you, his sons, who he has called to serve in his church. Since he is so strong, then you need not rely on your strength. Nor do you need to pine over your weaknesses, for they are the platforms for the exhibitions of his strength. Did he not say to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, what God is looking for today, he's not looking for a good for a few good men. He's looking for a few weak men whom he can display his almighty power through. Don't think, are you a one-talent Christian? God is not limited by your limitations. He can make your one talent as fruitful as an unaided man's ten. Are you as weak as water? Most of us, we'll admit it, you preachers, we're as weak as water then rejoice and glory in your infirmity because now the power of God shall and can rest upon you. Don't think about what you were able to do. That's little enough, however much it is. But consider what he can do with and through you. Has he not told us in 1 Corinthians 1 that he purposely chose here's a description now you preachers he purposely chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise the weak things of the world to shame the strong the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him he can lift up the fallen hand He can strengthen the weakened knee. He can fan once again into a bright and burning flame the smoking flax. And today he says to all of you, do not be afraid, O worm Jacob. O little Israel, for I myself will help you. You will yet thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. And you will yet rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you are indeed our strength and our song. You are exalted above this earth and all mankind. And mighty and exalted is your right hand. Glorify yourself today in our lives Manifest the incomparable greatness of your power in us, for you have a mighty arm and you are strong in battle. Bless us, O Lord, with the truth of your sovereignty over us, and show us your might that is readily available to us. In all this we pray in the mighty name of Christ, our glorious Savior, and for his cause. Amen.